Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 198. So glad you could join me. Today's guest, Ruth Bavetta, is here. She'll be with us in about 15 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this. We love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Ring the bell for notifications. Anything you'd like to do to spread poetry around the internet would be greatly appreciated. That's all we ask is just help and spread this stuff, because poetry is important. It's what it's the voice of our soul, and it's really something that we should be spreading around. So leave reviews, and anything you can do to help do that um, would be appreciated. Now, we'd like to begin with our Poets Respond poets, as always do, to keep uh, poetry up to date with the news and what's going on in the world. And Jerry, Mar- Jerry Marks is here. Um, and here he is. Hey, Jeremy, how are you doing? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to see you um, and have you in an issue um, or in, in Poets Respond. Can you tell us what the poem is about and what inspired it? So I wrote the poem, Smoke Gets in My Eyes, uh, because I got a phone call last week, last Thursday, in fact, from my father, who lives in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. And he called me to tell me that he could barely see outside uh, the car window because of all the smoke from the wildfires uh, streaming down from Canada. And uh, it's kind of a funny thing, actually, because I grew up in the Washington, D.C. suburbs and I live in Canada. So right away, there was that connection between um where my folks are and where I am. And right away, it got my wheels turning about how something that could be happening so far away that's connected to the climate in the country where I live is having a direct impact uh, on my father. And again, prompted that phone call. Yeah, it was the topic that we had the most submissions about this week. And and it was one of those things that just everybody was writing about, um, just the experience, I think, because it's something for, for me uh, that's pretty typical. You know, I've had, we've had forest fires here. I've been, actually, last year at this time, uh, we had to cancel the show because I was evacuated for a forest fire. I was here, but the power was out because it burned down all the wow. power lines. And we were wondering about evacuating. So it's typical here, but it's something that the East Coast doesn't experience very often. And that, and it is such a surreal feeling that that ashy, you know, dark orange sky and the little red sun that you can stare at as long as you want. It doesn't matter. Um, and, and, but what stood out with this poem was just the, the touching nature of it, really. It felt like you really connected on some level. Um, did, did, you find, did you find what you really were wanting to write about and interested in in the process of writing the poem? Or was it something that you knew the, a direction you were going? That's a great question. I mean, I, the, basically what happened is that I was literally in my car on the way to work. And when I got off the phone with my father, I had one of those moments where it was, all right, get to a computer and start, you know, at least jot down some ideas because something's going on here, uh, which, you know, as I think everyone here can appreciate, is hard to really describe. It's just one of those moments where it's, okay, you're connecting with this on an emotional level, on a soulful level, and also on a cognitive level. And I felt as I was writing it, that it was very much a response poem, not just in terms of how it made me feel, but also, and I think this fits in with what Poets Respond is about, about really what's going on in the world and trying to I was hoping to be able to inject something, I'll call it emotional, but I know it's deeply personal, into the flood of news and news coverage that we were getting, which I really felt was pretty technical. And then also was talking about, you know, the anomaly of a forest fire having this effect on the East Coast. But I really felt that there was something bigger and deeper that I really just needed to get out. And so, like I said, it was, I got that feeling right away of, all right, get to a computer and start going and see where this process takes me. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can tell in it that, 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 that it came from such an authentic place. Uh, let's hear the poem now. Smoke gets in my eyes. 
Smoke gets in my eyes. It's in six sections, so I'll go by section. Section one, I got a call this morning from my father who said the smoke was so thick over home that it had come in the form of a brown fog to make your throat burn, or what my sister said smelled like the apocalypse. We're Jews, so we don't use that word on a regular basis. I don't know how we got here, my father claimed, and it was a terrible shame. Worse, I know he was at least 1,000 clicks from the closest blaze. In Manhattan, they couldn't see the top of the Chrysler building. Two, currently, I live in Canada, where right-wing papers say the blazes come from bad forestry, not Alberta bitumen, Canadian bacon, and uranium mining. My wife told me that last night my snores were so loud they molested her dreams. All night, I sawed away at some log, and she wondered whether my nasal passages had swelled with ash. No matter how much light, water, and fertilizer I use, I can never predict how my plants will do. The drought takes some, and bunnies eat the rest. I have a desert rose that dazzled me last year with lush green leaves, but remains bare this June. In all our years together, this has never happened. Three. My great-grandfather knew DDT was a problem. He was a lifelong Republican, even though he took a position with FDR's Works Progress Administration during the Depression. He grew watermelons in his yard, built a windmill for clean power, and tried to never live in a town larger than 10,000. He also killed sparrows by the scores because he said they were bad birds. Some folks believe there are fauna and flora who are sinners, and God, or opposable thumbs, gives them a right to smite. His wife loved birds and awaited their return while wintering among the dim dust of northwestern Missouri prairie. I have been out to the town where she expired, Cameron M.O., in January, when nothing seems to move save people from their front doors to Chevys and Fords and through the double doors at chain stores. Four. I live in a place that still has vast forests. Hunters go on call-in shows and say they should be allowed to hunt bears in the spring because store-bought meat is far worse cruelty. Hunting is sporting while factory farms commit unspeakable harm. A bear showed up in a neighborhood nearby and the city had it shot. People took to social media to declaim the criminality of summary executions when government could just do a resettlement. My neighbors grow tomatoes and do not like grackles for their noise and mess. Squirrels keep chewing the heads off their tulips. If you live where there are bears, you are advised not to keep vegetable patches. Five. My wife comes from a small town where good dark soil turns to clay about six inches down. My parents' yard has the same problem. The two places are not quite 1,000 clicks from each other. Six. My father apologized for his anguished call. He wanted to know that his son, daughter-in-law, and grandchildren were all right. We didn't see each other for nearly two years. There was a global virus and now catastrophic fires. I told him he never he need never be sorry for love. And then I hung up and lost my voice because smoke got in my eyes. Thank you. Yeah, great poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Jeremy. That was Smoke Got in My Eyes by Jeremy Marks. And I just, you know, for Poets Respond to have a poem that long is is really fun. And um, to have it be engaging the whole way through. And then there's that that turn at the end that's really so touching. So I really enjoyed it. Thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure and an honor. Yeah, thanks so much. Take care. You too. Yep, that was Jeremy Marks. Uh, Once again, with Smoke Gets in My Eyes, Sunday's poem. And now we have a second Poets Respond poet this week. Uh, Francesca Moroni is here. And uh, hey, Francesca, how are you? 
Hi, I'm well, thanks. How are you? Thanks yeah. for having me. It, my pleasure. Another poet, the first time on uh, Poets Respond or in Rattle at all. It's, it's great to see yeah. you. Um, and so tell us what your poem is about. Sure. So um, I, uh, I'm writing about a, a separation, a divorce. And when I saw an article, um, the women of Mauritania um, celebrate their divorces uh, it occurred to me how that's just the complete polar opposite from any sort of cultural or societal um, experience I think most of us in the West have. And um, I realized that I had these jars of honey that had kept showing up in my journal. And it, it was only after I read the article that I realized, oh, I was trying to make a ritual um, for myself. So uh, the poem came out of that both the reading of the article and this understanding of rituals and how they can serve. Yeah, it is such an interesting thing that, um, you know, when, when you talk about it, um, uh, there's this, uh, Oh, I'm getting divorced. And everyone's like, Oh, sorry. And they're like, no, it's not a bad thing. And then I'm like, Oh, congratulations then. And then they start talking about how happy they were that they got divorced. And there's this, this whole sort of, you know, underbelly of like that, that feeling, that that I never was aware of that, that you know it turns into a lot of really interesting great conversations with with strangers um, about it and and you know how many people have gone through it and everything like that and it's so weird that it's one of those things that we don't talk much about in an honest way so it was interesting to to hear this poem um, and two Ruth Bavetta's book coming up is about um, staying with her husband for so long so we kind of get both uh, sides of the the um, story here which is an interesting thing too. You know, but poetry is, is so often about those taboos, those things that we don't talk openly about or, or directly about, and then they find their way into poems. And that's really the power of poetry is to talk about things that we don't talk about much. Do you find it really freeing to write a book or, or write poems about the subject? Yes, for sure. I mean, um, I think that ultimately that what you said, that desire to write about the things that don't often get talked about definitely motivates me. Um, and also in the retelling of them, I get to make them what I want them to be. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, very cool. Let's hear this poem. I kept buying right. bottles of honey. It's gonna be tomorrow's poem for everybody who subscribed to the Daily Poem on Rattle. And of course, if you're not subscribed, go down to uh, the bottom of any page and you'll see the sign up where you get the poems in your inbox every day. You don't have to think about coming to Rattle. You just get them right there and uh, with notes and updates and things too. So uh, go ahead and do that if you haven't yet. But let's hear this poem. Great, thanks. This is called, I Kept Buying Bottles of Honey after Catherine Pierce. I kept buying bottles of honey as if the amber-hued stuff could actually deliver the promises of health and wholeness I read on each label, slowly, repeatedly, kneeling before them in the grocery aisle. As if tasting the difference between Tupelo and Manuka might finally unlock the bolted door I was forever throwing my heart against. Because the cashier always smiled and the clinking jars kept me company on the walk home. I kept buying bottles of honey as if each satisfying pop of a new lid unsealed could be a fresh start. As if my hands holding the virgin jar could serve as makeshift womb as if I actually believed salvation could be found in sweetness. I kept buying bottles of honey because I had no other addiction. I was allergic to gin, 
repelled by chocolate, made hysterical by marijuana. In those days, I lived on oranges and slices of sky. Coffee tasted like dirt, eggs wouldn't scramble, toast turned to ash, and before I could make porridge, the water boiled back into the atmosphere. Because I bled all the pens dry and still could not find the right metaphor. Because the dirges in my journal terrified me with their crowded, unrecognizable script. Each line a miniature pirate's plank, my words falling right off the page. As if the honey could replenish all that had been plundered. Because the sun set too early and rose too late and the candles didn't catch and the dogs broke the lamp. And even in a good year, the magnolia only blooms for a single week. Because I wanted to be naked, raw and wild, but was actually too tired to live, too lazy to die. Instead, I did nothing but take my mug outside each morning. I sat on the fallen pink and purple petals and stirred my tea. I waited for the honey to melt into its newfound heat, swirling the golden globule round and round, the shimmering, eddying vortex, my tiny daily victory, a lone act of creation. Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Francesca. And, um, and I just love that, that satisfying pop of the honey jar. I think that's really what sold the poem. Um, so, so what, um, you know, have, not having read that article, what is the ritual like in, in Mauritania? What, what do people do? Oh, it's a celebration the way we, the, the kinds of celebrations we have for birthdays or wedding anniversaries or births or, you know, there's, there's feasting involved, there's costumes, there's, there's fancy dress. Um, what really struck me was that mothers present their daughter, their divorced daughters with like pride and affection as a transition, as a, just a, a part of a woman's growth and experience of the world. Um, I found it really beautiful. The photos accompanying the article are fantastic. Yeah. Well, very interesting. Well, everybody should tomorrow when they get that in their inbox, check out the article as well. That's linked uh, in the notes, but yeah, Francesca, great poem and great metaphor throughout there. I love that. Thanks so much for sharing it. Uh, thank you so much for having me, yep. Ruth. Have fun. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks both. A lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, that was Francesca Maroney with I Kept Buying Bottles of Honey. That's going to be tomorrow's poem on rattle.com. Now, um, we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, Ruth Bavetta. She'll be here, and uh, so sit tight, and I will be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, Ruth Bavetta's poems have appeared in Rattle, Nimrod, North American Review, Slant, American Poetry Journal, and many other places. She's been the associate editor for Good Works Review, nominated for the Best of the Net and the Pushcart Prize. Uh, she likes the light on November afternoons, the music of Stravinsky, and the smell of the ocean where she lives. I got uh, friends on Facebook and I see a lot of ocean pictures from her, too. Uh, she hates pretense, fundamentalism, and sauerkraut. Uh, what's left over here is her fifth book of poetry released last year by Future Cycle Press. And here she is, Ruth Bavetta. Hey, Ruth, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, it's so great to have you on. Uh, you know, you're a long time. Um, contributor and, and friend of Rattle. And uh, it's great to have you here. You've been to our reading series in LA too, but I haven't seen you in years. So it's good to see you again. Do you want to start uh, out? Uh... I'll go back way to when Rattle started. Alan Fox and I were in Jack Grape's poetry class together. Yeah, I want to talk about that because I'm, I'm unclear about that um, myself. But we'll talk about that after we read a poem. I want to start out with uh, get the poetry rolling first. So do you want to start out with uh, the first poem in the book? 
Okay. Name of this poem is Enough. All of the poems in this uh, book are more or less about my uh, uh, husband, my second husband. It was a second marriage for us both, and it worked, who died in 2016. Uh, it was the second marriage for us both, and this time we got it right. Ah, great. That's great to hear. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the first uh, poem in this book is called Enough. Too many streets in the city with their spines drawn white, their paving black as loss. As many as the branches of winter bare sycamores leading away from home. As many as the veins that trace their course through our bodies. Central Avenue, broad and straight, leads directly to the beating heart of downtown. Sunset Drive takes you to the aging painted ladies and their scrolls of gingerbread trim. There's the Avenue of Cancer, the Boulevard of Diabetes, the irregular lane following fibrillation of the heart, the wandering way of dementia with its bridge broken over the river of self. Yeah, beautiful poem, as these all are, um, in What's Left Over, Ruth Bavetta's newest book, which came out last year from Future Cycle Press. Um, so, Ruth, we already mentioned... Um, that you were right here uh, at the beginning of Rattle. And I, I'm, I'm curious about that because I, you know, it's weird to, to, to say maybe, but the, the early days of Rattle are a bit shrouded in a mystery to me. I think, you know, <laughs> Alan founded it. I know, you know, there's a, there was a class workshop. Um, and then we have the, let me, sorry. We have right here the, the first class chapbook that was um, Rattle, the uh, Los Angeles Poets Collective number one. And Alan says he volunteered to like put the thing together at Kinko's with his, uh, with his personal executive assistant. And, um, but, but the thing is, I think Rattle didn't, he didn't realize how big it was going to be and what it was going to become. And so he kind of, his memory is a little foggy. And so I get kind of a hazy recollection of how things started. So what is your perspective and how involved with it from the start, were you? Were you in those original classes with Jack? I was in, I was in the classes with Jack Grapes with uh, Alan. He wasn't in the first class I took with Jack, <clears throat> pardon me. But uh, he did come in and talk about uh, Rattle. And I think we all kicked in a bit. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, finance printing it. Yeah. I think that was probably the, about the second issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this the first two were chapbooks in this style, just very yeah, simple. Yeah, yeah. but I, I think it had a blue cover, but I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, I have all of them, and they actually all have this. Um, there's there's gray covers and this sort of mottled brown, and then uh, the first three I think are like that. Then it becomes an actual like perfect bound book length yeah. thing. And, you know, the course of how that happened is something that I'm not even that sure about. But so what brought you to, to Joe's, that was uh, 1993, 94 or so we're talking about. What brought you to Jack Rape's workshops? I saw an ad someplace and it was before the Internet. Maybe it was in Poets Magazine or something or Poets and Writers or someplace like that. And uh, I had taken a class at Crafton uh, Hills Junior College. I was living out in Redlands. And uh, I decided I needed something better than that. Yeah. And so, so what was it that, that drew you to poetry in the first place? Was it, was it something that you'd always wanted to do? Or was it something that was just on a, on a whim? I know you paint. I don't know what came first, the painting or the, the poetry? What came first was my degree in geology and paleontology. <laughs> yeah. And then I uh, did, did the wife in the suburbs thing. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, started painting. And that's actually what my MFA is, and not not in uh, creative writing. Mm-hmm. I have no no uh, academic credentials to, <laughs> to say I'm a poet, but yeah. uh, I just I don't know. I thought I could juggle both, and I did for a while. But uh, now I'm just doing your writing. I will tell you, unsold poems are much easier to store than unsold paintings. <laughs> That's true. Well, <laughs> I mean, we love your paintings too, and uh, and you know, we have those. Um, not only were you uh, the Ecrastic Challenge artist once um, with one of your paintings, but then we also have in the visual poetry issue those erasures that you did, those beautiful ones. I'll put them up on screen. We didn't plan on. Um, um, sharing them now, so we, I don't know if you have them in front of you to read or anything like that. But but they're these beautiful erasure paintings that you do of um, actual pages of books, and so that was on our visual poetry issue. Let me uh, find them really quick so we can just share what we're talking about here. Um, those were really fun. Yeah, those really they're really fascinating. Um, oh come on, it's pretty down, far down the the Ruth Bavetta list, I guess. Okay, here we go. So this is uh, Ruth Bavetta's uh, "I Am Anything." And this is from the traveling, the traveling thirds, and she pulls out this um, erasure. I am anything: wars, idleness, responsibilities, fortunes. I till the soil, raid kitchen for cream and bread. And there's for if you're listening, there's this beautiful um, red and yellow painting of uh, sort of the grass coming up, and maybe flames too. You can, can't tell which it is. It's beautiful, beautiful painting. Um, and then we have another one. I'll, I'll show another one too. Uh, while we're here, let's look at uh, the end and the aim. There's another one uh, from this series that Ruth did. Um, and this one is uh, another another picture. It's also from the Traveling Thirds book, and it's the end and aim of all traveling, looking out into the dark, dimly lit with the infrequent lamp. And there's these stars and lights and circles in this uh, on a blue backdrop. Just beautiful use of the page. Um, and, and so, so, you know, obviously Ruth, you're an extremely creative person. Um, and, and how does that, that play in? How, how do you, you know, cause starting as a geologist or a geophysicist, I think you said, um, geology, paleontology. Yeah, there you go. How do you go from that into poetry? And, and what is it that drives you as you move through all these different mediums and everything that you do? Uh, well, how did I get into poetry? I just, I've been an inventor at Bookworm all my life and poetry was part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get interested in something and then I don't know how to let it go. <laughs> and I keep going after it. So I'll switch. We'll forget the folk guitar was in there one time. <laughs> well, that, that's great. I've been at poetry now for about 30 years. Mm-hmm. Gradually, the uh, art has faded out. I'm not doing even the little erasures anymore. Uh, my, um, I had a special printer that would uh, have non-fade, non-fading ink and that I could uh, put thick drawing paper in because mm-hmm. I didn't work on the actual page of the thing of there because, oh. you know, pages self-destruct, you know, that, mm-hmm. that acid, especially cheap old novels, which are what I was using. Mm-hmm. And so I would scan it and then print the paper, print the actual page on drawing paper and then work on it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so how did you come up with the idea to do that, to make the, the pages of text your, your canvas? It, 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 was a, it wasn't a, a Cecilia Wallach, but it was a class I went to. Sarah McClay, I think it was, mm-hmm. gave us a class of doing an, a, a, a project of doing an eraser poem. Eraser poem. And uh, I looked at this and I thought, I can't, you know, 
I just leave this with these little things on the page? <laughs> it bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> I like to push things around and make them look nice. Well, what's interesting to me, and I was I was just thinking about it, is that the, the relationship between that and the, the paleontology in geology, because an erasure is kind of like an excavation. You know, you're like digging through and finding like these little lines in the text of the poem. And, yes, and that's right. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way, yeah. When you were doing that, did you do any field work? Did you did you actually go to dig and stuff like that? I did only as far as class work was concerned. Mm -hmm. I, I never worked as a geologist. I uh, moved to San Francisco after I got out of school. I went to USC. And uh, I had to find something in San Francisco. Of course, everybody, geologists all genuflect in the direction of candid oil. But they weren't too interested in women with only a bachelor's degree. Mm hmm I worked as a chemist. I ran a chemistry lab for a, for a steamship. Uh, oh wow! A company that that treated the boiler water on steamships. Oh wow! <laughs> that is just such an amazing life you've had, Ruth. Really, and I wanted to cover some of it. Um, but let's hear some more. Uh, let's hear another poem. Another poem. Okay. Yeah. I have them printed up here. I find it much easier to read from a printed thing than from a book. And the rivers shall run into the sea. Night leaves earlier now, the dark bleeding away from the horizon as day in its thin summer cloak lifts a field of sky over slopes of wild mustard eaten by light. But summer is pregnant with the raking light of fall, a somber gold etching the city into bright and dark. And fall is reborn into winter with its dark run of shadows up the valley. Faster now, faster, relentlessly turning, relentlessly opening the door. And that's, uh, and the river shall run into the sea. Another poem from What's Left Over by Ruth Bavetta, her newest book uh, from Future Cycle Press. And, um, so, so we talked already in the show about the difficulty of marriage and how divorce, you know, is you know, half of marriages end in divorce is a statistic sort of everybody knows. And, um, you know, so this was your second marriage. And this is mostly about this and how how wonderful it was. And, um, you know, your husband who passed away a few years ago, um, you know, it's in memory of him. Um, so, so what was it about, you know, what made the, the second marriage work so well? And, and what, why didn't the first? <laughs> yeah, I didn't the first. It worked for a while. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as my kids hit, well, got all, the, two of the, the last of the two kids hit, hit, hit um, um, school, the big babysitter in order the school system, I went down to Valley College to take art classes because I thought it would be fun. Mm -hmm. By the time I uh, got my master's, I was divorced. Yeah. But when I started writing poetry, guess what all my poems were about? And it was like 20 years later. Divorce? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, it's the way that poems work. You know, there's things that are sort of tied up in knots in our mind, and then poems are untying those knots. And, and that's really the process and why poetry is so valuable, I think. As for why the second one worked, I don't know. He was from Norway. And uh, 
I'm from Southern California. We had nothing in our in our uh, cultural backgrounds much, but we just thought the same. Mm-hmm. We met each other, and in six months, I sold my house, and he had three kids, and I had two, and we piled everything into one house. And if one of my kids had done that mm-hmm. when they were going to marry age, I would have had a fit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's but good. How, how did you meet? We met, oh God, this is a cute one, a meet cute story. <laughs> we met at the UCR, uh, University of California, Riverside, and then one of their extension classes on the, the uh, oh God, the something of being single, the challenge of being single. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. And then six months later, you're already uh, together. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that didn't take long. Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> Dogs and cats and kids, and too much furniture from two houses all crammed into one. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, let's hear another poem. Um, next up is uh, Summer. The Nomenclature of Desire. The name of the lily is the name I had before I was born, before white, before red before the moon carved itself into one thin hair. The name of the sea is salt and spray and flat blue under pale. My lover's name is written on my palm. The name of the grass is always. Yeah, I love that any of that. That's the nomenclature of desire. Uh, the name of the grass is always. That's a beautiful way to end the poem. That is uh, what's good from What's Left Over by Ruth Bavetta. Um, so, so with how, you know, you mentioned being drawn to poetry. Um, what, what is it that, that you, you try to do with your poems? Um, you know, you know, that poem has such a beautiful ending that the poems in this book are so sparse and, and touching and, and take unusual turns all the time, which is why it's such a great read. Um, you know, what is it that you're trying to do with the poem? Write a good poem. <laughs> I, I, I love to play with words. I grew up in a family where we indulged in a lot of wordplay. And uh, my my second husband's life, he was fun to be married to because we, there was wordplay all the time. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't always poetic wordplay, but it, it was, you know, turning something into a surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh... That's one of the things that that you know, playing with words, and there, there's a joy to that, you know. And yes, there's there a is. yeah, and there's a. I always think of from uh, Zen and the Art of Archery, um, talking about the the trick or the key to to make, hitting your target, which is um, you know to play with the bow and arrow like a child plays with a toy, you know, and and to not think and not not and, and not imply or in, invoke your consciousness and make it into something that it's not but just to play around with the words and see what happens and there's just such a spontaneous joy in that which is why we love the young poets anthology too do, do you have to work it all to get to that place where you're playing and just having fun with language does does your your um, intention ever get in the way uh i never know where i'm going to go with a poem when i started i just started and somehow i all of a sudden, I'll look, oh, that's my last line. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very often, it's not my last line when I start, though. I will say I sometimes want to tie it up in a bow and then realize I shouldn't be doing it and take it off. Yeah. And the fact that Jack um, really emphasized the use of, of, of images, and I think that tied into my interest in art. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, th- those are the key. And, and Jack's also, um, uh, you know, he's saying, write like you talk is his big his motto that he says over yeah. and over yes. again. And don't exactly. don't try to be too, you know, poetic and just let the spontaneous way that we think come out on the page, which is what we're all drawn to. And it's always, I always think about that because it's just so true. Reading submissions, um, you know, you see the, the poet sort of trying to appear and trying to seem profound and really getting in the way of good poems very frequently. And so it, it's such great, um, great advice that, that Jack gives there. Um, do you want to, let's, let's read another poem. You skipped a, a Somer, I think. Is, it, is that how you say it, Somer? On page 30? Uh, what is it? Uh, summer? On page 30. Was oh, the... did I give you Summer? Yeah, you did. Oh, well, <laughs> I will have to find it. I didn't okay. think I could. Uh, can you wait for me to yeah, bring yeah, it? Yeah, we can wait for just a second. And I should say, if anybody has any questions for Ruth, um, Dick Westheimer already, already left one. I'll, uh, I'll pass that along in just a minute. But if you have any questions for Ruth, leave them in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube, and I will pass them along. Digging deeper and deeper into the file. Well, it's okay if you want to read a different one, too. We don't have to do that one. Well, let's just go ahead down my list here. Okay. Love in our eighth and ninth decades. It's like lifting a violin out of its case. A trick of the light that drives the music. We give ourselves to those these well-known melodies as if our bodies were as they were before. And our hearts slide into the world of sheer delight, where we tangle ourselves in every way we're still able, glut our mad old eyes with each other, until everything is reduced to a single light. Our skin glistered in sweat, we can be beautiful again. And that was love in our eighth and ninth decades. Something which uh, you know, everybody hopes they get to experience uh, from What's Left Over by Ruth Bavetta. Um, and so the question I mentioned from uh, Dick Westheimer was, um, uh, could you talk about your revision process? This is Dick. He says, your poems seem so effortlessly written as if they are f- uh, are as first written. And it does feel that way. There's this, because you you use that you know, playfulness, you have that sort of sense of playful spontaneity within your, your poems. They feel sort of effortless. That's kind of the, the mystique of them, maybe. Um, how, how accurate is that? Do you do a lot of revision? And how does revision go? I think revision is the fun part. <laughs> a lot of souls I hear say they don't like revision, but I, I really like it. I have a great deal of fun with it. But it interferes with my... Uh, um, Submitting, because every time I start to submit, I, I realize I've got to revise this poem a few more times. And I've spent my submission afternoon revising three or four poems instead. <laughs> but uh, I just, uh, it's, most, it's mostly about taking out stuff and moving stuff around. And uh, I tend to leave in too many that's and therefores and type type of things mm-hmm. and get them out and then realize I said something that didn't have a, that had no kind of a image to it. And, and, and instead of saying something like a beautiful something, I say a day with something, something, uh, but, uh, and every once in a while, you know, a, a poem comes full blown, like, like, <laughs> like, uh, who was it that, that came from the brow of Zeus? <laughs> fully formed. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. That's that's really a lucky day and I sometimes I don't trust it. <laughs> well, how do you um you know, how often do you write? Is it do you write daily? Is it a regular part of your routine or, or... for a long time because Jack browbeats everybody into doing it. Uh-huh. But I, I don't now. Uh, right right now I'm uh meeting with three different Zoom groups. And uh, we give each other prompts, and then we all go away and write and come back, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is which is fun because it makes it kicks me out of my ruts. We all do get ruts that we tend to go get into. You know, I sit up there and I look out my window, and there's the ocean, and there's an electric tree, and there's the sun, and I've lived in California all my life, and I I tend to go down those roots. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's nice to be on somebody else. I found my uh, uh, summer, by the way. I can read that from the book. It's on page thirty. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't think of writing it from the book. What enough? I was looking at it in my files. Okay. You're, are you ready for yeah, that? I'm ready. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Summer. In Norway, they have a saying: "If you're for summer and for torsdag." Summer, when the tra- temperature reached a torrid 75 degrees. The balconies of houses and apartments are festooned with quilts hung out to air. And women with, oh, I'm sorry, the light's bad. And women on park benches unbutton their shirts to soak in the thin northern sun. Summer. When the flower boxes on every window burst with open-throated petunias in every color, and the sun shines and shines, as if to make up for the time lost in winters dark and cold. Summer it was when I was there, and sailed with the love of my life on a sailboat on the Oslo Fjord, stopping at a friend's island, Hitta for wild raspberries and cream. And when we docked, the sun at midnight, at midnight, at midnight. Oh, the midnight sun. Yeah, another beautiful poem. It's somewhere from uh, What's Left Over. Um, so the thing that's so moving about this this book, really, is that it's such a poem, it's, it's such a book of, of gratitude and joy. You know, and looking back at something that you've lost, it might, it might be, you know, because that, that time is over with your husband uh, who passed away. W- was it difficult to look back and, and, and find the joy in it? Um, or was it or was it the, what you wanted to do as you set out to write the book? Because um, it, it's it's really it's, it's almost rare to find a book of poetry that feels like it springs out of joy. And, and that's something that makes the book really such a pleasure to read. I wrote a lot of this during the time he was in hospice here at home for six months, mm-hmm. uh, really difficult six months. Uh, and I wrote a lot of uh, sad poems, mm-hmm. and there are sad poems in this book. But uh, I do have a large section of of, of the good poems. And uh, in a way, I think if you maybe if you see the joyous poems with the uh, with the sad ones, it maybe lends a, a bit of depth to the joyous poems that I'm not really speaking. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was a good 43 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and how much, um, 
did your husband participate in the poetry with you? Was it something that he would read and, and share in? Or um, He always came to my poetry reading. Mm-hmm. He often cried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, he was um, one of the world's best proofreaders. And because English is not his native language, sometimes he caught me in grammar mistakes. Mm-hmm. Because I'm a seat of the pants grammarian. <laughs> I've read so much, it either sounds right or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes you say, wait a minute. <laughs> but yeah. he didn't read poetry on his own, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, well, uh, let's hear, hear another poem. All right, this is Guy Interrupted. The invisible light of lilacs floats in waves above the garden. Sparrows paint the roses white, dye the lilies the color of loss. The olive tree weeps for its leaves. Iris and peonies slouch in the sun. After a long tomorrow, when the hose lies unattended and the iron gate has been repaired, the disoriented dead will fold their hearts and settle upon the waiting grass. Yeah, that is sky interrupted. And there's just such such magic in the way that you go about presenting images. The, the disoriented dead is such a beautiful phrase there. Um, and then, you know, settling upon the waiting grass. The, that disoriented and the waiting are two words that you wouldn't think to put in there. So we talked about the revision process a little bit. Do you remember, I don't know if you remember that specific poem, but do phrases like that come out naturally and then you're moving them around? Or are you, how are you inserting things? Because there's so many unusual ways of putting things that stand out. You know, you mentioned using a lot of images, but the way you describe them is often unique. And that's, that's one of the things that stands out in the book. So how do you come up with those? I fool around a lot with word sounds. Mm-hmm. I wear out word, uh, um, um, the lousy. Well, it's better now. It was it was better for poetry when it was lousy. The uh, um, the thesaurus. Thesaurus. Thank mm-hmm. you. I get hit by uh, aphasia occasionally. Uh, it was really word had a lousy thesaurus when I was writing, and I that that was good for writing poetry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I sometimes by, by looking in there, not so much that I want to, I want to change the word I've used, but it will send me in another direction that I wouldn't have thought of trying. Mm-hmm. I said, what happens if I just throw that in there? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I started fooling a lot without, with sounds, with alliteration and word sounds, not necessarily rhymes, but uh, or off, off rhymes. And I think probably Disoriented Dead came from that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, so it really goes back to playing, you know, just playing with language and not having any kind of fixed you know, need to go in a certain direction, but letting the words and the sounds and the, you know, what comes to your mind, you know, go wherever it takes you. I kind of like being kicked into another direction. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have gone. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the importance of, of visual images in poems and how that relates to painting. One of the things about painting I've always wondered is how you decide what to paint. 
Uh, you know, because in a poem, it, it, to me, it, it's, you know, someone who's really naive and ignorant about painting, it seems like a poem is so easy to, like, just go in whatever direction you want and, and you know, write about whatever, because it's just a piece of paper. It doesn't cost anything. It costs five cents or whatever or less. Um, and then you can just tear it up in a ball and throw it away. But a painting, you have all these materials and the canvas, and you're spending so much time on one piece. Um, how do you decide... Uh, what what to do in a painting and what to focus on and how does that does that help you writing a poem too is what I'm getting at you know well I just feel as far as the poem part goes it's a little bit like painting with words Mm -hmm. but how you find but what I tended to work in series like a lot of artists do I did a whole series on um, uh, fire uh, wildfires because I've always lived Near the near the chaparral, with and a couple of times had them had them come fairly close, and they're scary and interesting, and yet they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I did a, a lot of paintings trying to uh, uh, make it almost so you couldn't tell if it was a sunset or a fire. Because mm-hmm. there, I, I was fascinated by the contrast between the beautiful and the. Um, and I did a lot of still lifes with like broken glass, fascinated between the beautiful and the dangerous and the connections between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll put this poem or a painting up on the screen, too. This was a Chronicle, which is the one that you um, did for the Ekphrastic um, uh, Challenge. And so, you know, people wrote poems about this painting and, and we, we each chose one. Um, but this is Chronicle here, and it's just so fascinating that this is the subject matter. It's, you know, it's six people, for those just listening, it's six people sort of standing around what looks like probably some kind of accident scene, um, but you can't see at all the accident or what's taking place. There's a police officer sort of taking a statement. It's called Chronicle, so I think maybe there's a journalist because there's someone with a camera, but maybe it's not. There's someone with flip-flops standing there with sunglasses. There's, there's, there's just sort of people milling around talking. And, and how... You know, how did this one become a painting? Is something I was wondering because I was—I th- remember thinking that actually, looking at that at that painting, it's such an interesting use of subject matter. It's not something you would think you would be do a painting about, you know. And so there it is. So how how did that come to be? Um, when I was my my, my uh, thesis show was all abstract. Mm-hmm. Somehow I ended my I ended my career as a figure painter, and I would go around. I had a camera. Was you know this is before. Uh, digital cameras, of course, with a with a long zoom, two hundred zoom lens, and I put a, a, an extender on it, so I would really be far away because I didn't want to paint people. If you point a camera at somebody, they know they're posing. Mm-hmm. They get all self conscious and they stand a certain way. And I I think body language is fascinating, and so I would just sneak around. I one of my favorite places to go was Palisades Park in uh, Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. where the old guys come out and play uh, checkers. Mm-hmm. And I would hang out there. I would go to beaches. Uh, but for that, and I would take a lot of photographs. And then I would work from those photographs. Uh, and the other advantage about uh, painting from a photograph is photograph uh, doesn't change um, when you move. Mm-hmm. which, <laughs> But uh, um, that photograph was taken right out in front of my house when I lived in Redlands mm-hmm. and they used to uh, uh, have once a year a, an international bicycle, bicycle race and that's what those people were. They, oh. they would close off Sunset Drive where I lived which was up on the top of the hills there uh, 
and uh, the bicycle rate would come and they would they would pass us and they'd go out and then they'd come back again and you'd see them again and we'd all stand out in front. I had an exercycle and I threatened to take my exercycle out there and ride too and the kids <laughs> mother. <laughs> That's great. Um... Let's see. So Mary Torgers is here. Hi, Mary. And uh, she says, I think entering into the zone of painting with paint and brush and trusting the process is good practice for entering the zone of writing. Ruth, do you find yourself dropping into a writing zone? And how much is that? How much is it like a meditation in, in that, that sense of being in the zone where you're not yourself almost, and you're totally lost in art? Is that one of the main things that draws you to different mediums? Yeah. In both those things, I would get totally lost, mm -hmm. absolutely lost. I used to listen to music when I painted, but I can't listen to anything when I'm writing. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I have a Zoom meeting every day at 4.15, and I usually come in early, and I sit down and start fiddling with my playing. The next thing I do is get a phone call saying, where are you? <laughs> and I'm writing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, another related question is for Penelope Moffat. So there's a lot of local SoCal's watching uh, right now, SoCal poets. Um, Penelope asks, um, she says, Ruth's poems are so imagistic, beautifully so. When she begins writing a poem, which comes first for her, the images she wants to convey or the words? Which is an interesting question, too, to ask somebody who's both a painter and a uh, poet. Yeah, what comes first? I usually start with an image mm -hmm. and then see what tacks onto that. Ah. Uh, yeah, it just seems an obvious way for for me to do it. But, uh, yeah. And where does the image come from? Is it something that you just happen to see that day, or a memory that's triggered, or, or do random th images appear to you, and then that's you know, you know, because we are writing. It's so fascinating. You talked about you know twenty years later writing about divorce. Um, mm -hmm. after the divorce, you know, and, and we're always writing to get to some thing that we haven't, some puzzle we haven't solved. And so, yeah. so it's interesting how we come to that solution when it, it's from an external source. Well, I think in images, don't you? <laughs> well, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, when you're remembering something, you have a mind picture. And so that very often that's where it starts. Or you remember, and like in one of my divorce poems, the, the awful last anniversary we had together <laughs> mm -hmm. we both went, when we went out to dinner and never mentioned that both of us were unhappy mm -hmm. and I can see us sitting there in that in that restaurant which wasn't a very good one <laughs> yeah and and then so that the poem you know do you re-enter that moment through the image I guess you would say yeah yeah so so how do you find the words um is it starting out you know describing the image in words like how does a translation into words from image work i think it's just starting out with the image that you know i think i put i i think i started that that divorce poem but something about the the light coming in through the cold window and hitting the ice the, the glass of ice water on the table mm -hmm. yeah well, we have uh, two poems left to read and about enough time for them. So let's do uh, Sometimes next. What's on my list? Okay, Sometimes. Sometimes my heart is air. I breathe it in and it smells of sorrow. It is a lemon on the tree they gave me when he died. It is brown like his eyes and tastes of sugar and salt. Sometimes I'm heavy with love. Sometimes it's just a memory. 
Yeah, another beautiful poem that was sometimes from what's left over. Um, this book by Ruth Beveda from Future Cycle Press. Um, so, so you met, oh, one thing someone asked too that I meant to say, you mentioned that you do Zooms and there are prompts for the Zoom readings. So, so what are some of the prompts like? Uh, that's what someone wanted to know. And, and, and what, what prompts work best for you? Uh, prompts I can get into with images and prompts that don't have, to, aren't too far out of my own experience mm-hmm. that I don't have much to say about it. Um, we usually bring in, we take turns bringing in a prompt. We usually bring in a prompt with uh, several songs, poems that uh, uh, work off of that uh, idea. Uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I brought in pom- prompts that uh, all had to do with death. Mm-hmm. And But then last week we wrote about dogs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 it can vary widely mm-hmm. and we take turns reading the poems and talk a little bit about them and then we uh, shut ourselves off and write and come back and I've gotten several good poems of it and just the experience is good even if the poem isn't uh, you know maybe it'll sit in my unfinished file forever mm-hmm. yeah um, well, Spartacus and Agnostorus is here, even though it's very late where he is. And um, he is uh, he, he mentions that Happiness, which is the last poem you're going to read, is one of his favorite poems in the book. He loves that poem. And that's the last one you're going to close on, which is great. Um, and we already talked about it, your writing process. So we got that covered. But um, he wants to know also, uh, who are the poets that influenced your way of writing? Um, you know, we mentioned Jack, but who else uh, just influenced? Who, who do you try to write like? Is there anything like that? Or is there poets that inspire you in that way? When I was first with Jack, I was really hooked on Jane Kenyon. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe Linda Paston. Uh, I, I tend to hop around. Uh, I'm reading different parts at different times. It, uh, I can't think of anybody I really wanted to write. Um, Dorian Law. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, I I'm I, I'm kind of a fickle reader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you read a lot of things outside of of literature? Do you read? You know, I mean, having that background in in uh, geology and paleontology, you know, do you have a wide range of like scientific interests and all sorts of things? I used to, but I I kind of don't read those much anymore. Mm-hmm. My uh, husband was an amateur astronomer. I used to read a little bit of his, but he got too deep into it for me. Yeah. Uh, I uh, I read mostly uh, what they call literary fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I cannot abide a novel that has bad writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, definitely. And you, at least you can tell with the first paragraph, usually, which is the nice thing about about a novel, but yeah. Um, so, so now that, uh, that this book is done, what have you been working on? Is there any uh, themes or, or topics that you're covering? Do you have any other books in progress or are you just writing, you know, to the prompts and what, what inspires you and, and come as it may? I another book yet there, a new book, mm-hmm. but, uh, towards the end of the year, um, a future cycle is going to bring out a selected poems for me. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just had to put that together. It wouldn't involve writing. Mm-hmm. 
decisions, decisions, decisions. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, which to select out of all of them. Um, what, let me ask you about that, too. You know, looking back, since that's something you're doing right now, what is it about a poem that makes it stay for you or makes it special to you? Because it's one thing I found is that, that poets' favorite poems of their own tend not to be everybody else's favorite poems. So is there something that, as you look back at a selected, that you're thinking about? Or are you just thinking about which ones were the most popular? No. In fact, I pulled out some that hadn't gotten much play before. Mm-hmm. I will say that the rattle poem about the Volkswagen, when I go to readings, everybody likes that one. <laughs> they do. That that one line about the washing machine and chasing, being chased by a washing machine is just so great. And I give credit to my father for that. The first time he wrote it in my book. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like a washing machine back there. <laughs> yeah, that's just great. Um, so, uh, so since, um, we're going to close out with happiness in just a moment, can you explain, cause Spartacus was asking about your process. Do you remember what the process was where, where happiness came to be this poem and, and how, what the, you know, how it step-by-step step went, went through your writing? No, you know, I don't remember at all. Mm-hmm. Happiness. Maybe somebody said, write a poem about happiness. And the last thing I wanted to write to do, you know, and that's kind of asking you to write a trite poem. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I'm not sure. Uh, I really don't remember that. What uh, I did, I think I wrote it not long after life died, and I there wasn't much happiness around here for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I remember thinking that being married to him that long was worth it. That go through what I'm going through was going through then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't know. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's all right. Well, let's hear it. This is uh, the last poem we'll hear, but this is happiness. Okay. Happiness. If it should come, lie down with it. Breathing, I am so glad you're here. Each word, a fisherman casting letters onto the sea. Light it come like a song unto grass. The entanglement of what is outside and what is held within. Hold it cupped in your palms like a bruised gentian. Yeah, and that was Happiness by Ruth Bavetta. And one of the things that I, I love about this book, too, we haven't mentioned yet, is the vocabulary in it. There's sort of always one word that um, I have to look up and I get to learn. And gentian was one of them, too. What is it? Uh, how, how does that happen? Is it just because you're so well read? Uh, or is that the thesaurus coming in? Uh, yeah, I'm... I'm, I'm uh... <laughs> I have an enormous vocabulary. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've never grown a gentian in my garden, but it seemed like the right word there. Yeah, yeah, that's just great. And and you don't you don't pull them out too often though, because we talk about this sometimes on our critiques and and with meetings with Alan. He has a little rule of thumb, which you know if we break it, it's fine. But if he has to look up one word, he's happy. And if he has to look up two words, it's too many. <laughs> and so you always kind of fit with the one word we get to look up, which is perfect. Yeah, yeah. When I took the graduate records exam, I went off the oh, I went off the top. <laughs> so, how do you find the right balance? Do you have to tone it down um, for regular readers. And I did want to ask too, because you know, a lot of it's reading vocabulary. You know, mm-hmm. you don't use it in your ordinary language. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I wanted to get to that too, though. What is your your intention with a poem? Like when you write it, what do you want someone to take away from the fact that they read your book? Is that something that you think about? I want them to feel feel it here. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. Yeah. And I want them maybe to be a little surprised by the ending and have the ending make the rest of the poem fall more into focus. Mm -hmm. I like a poem that just kind of wanders and then all of a sudden, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, we definitely feel it reading What's Left Over. It's really, a, it's, a, it's a, such a touching book in so many ways. And and like you said, that the sadness is there because of the, the gratitude and the joy, um, you know, mirror off that. So it's, it really feels so strongly uh, the way that it works. So uh, I want to mention just a little plug. Yeah, definitely plug. plug they won Future Cycle uh, Book Poetry Book Prize for 2022. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Yeah. Well, congratulations and and um, wonderful book. Thanks so much for uh, for sharing that, Ruth, and being a guest today. For having me, Sam. It's really nice. Yeah, just... it's definitely a pleasure. And I did. I really love this book. So thanks. Hope everybody goes out and buys a copy. A few people have already said they have. So that's great to hear. Uh, okay. Well, take care. Have a good night, Ruth. Bye bye. Bye. That was Ruth Bavetta. Uh, with her book, What's Left Over. You can find it on Amazon or at Future Cycle Press. Uh, the Future Cycle Press website is, um, let me look that up too, because I should uh, should say it exactly how it is. Future Cycle, futurecycle.org is the, the press. You can find it there. Uh, that is Ruth Bavetta with What's Left Over. Now we're going to go to Open Lines. We're going to take a quick break first. If you'd like to join Open Lines, what you would do um, is go to the Zoom link where Ruth was, and I will paste it into the chat windows on Facebook or YouTube. You can share whatever you'd like. We have a prompt every week. You can share a prompt poem. You can share poems about current events. You can share something that you um, read recently. Whatever you would like to do, you can uh, share a poem. Uh, so go to the Zoom link, which I'm about to deploy. But before you do, go to uh, openmic at rattle.com. Email me uh, at openmicrattle.com the poem so I can show it on the screen as you read. It's really nice to be able to look at poems as we hear them. So uh, email the poem first to openmic at rattle.com and then join the Zoom link, which I'm about to share. And I will be right back with uh, more poetry. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Uh, looking forward to the open lines now. Uh, we are going to start uh, with my prompt poem. This week's prompt was to write about a stranger you encounter this week. How are they the same? How are they different? It's some kind of leading questions you could think about as you encounter the stranger. Uh, that was inspired by last week's guest. And um, this is uh, my poem here. This is another true story. I think just, I guess I went through a phase where I just write little true stories that mean nothing and that imply a lot of meaning into them. And that's my, my technique that's going right now. This is The Stranger. And this is actually, this happened last week. I almost forgot about it. And then I remembered. So here we go. The Stranger. Outside and late, a car was idling. After a while, it entered my awareness. I opened the window, pressed my forehead against the mesh of the screen, I could smell the blue fumes of the engine, smoky and sweet. It was burning oil and antifreeze. The timing was off. It could have used a tune-up, I thought, channeling my father. But the leak was from the head gasket. It wouldn't be fixed. The car was old. Through the crimson leaves, the ornamental trees that were planted for privacy, I could see the glow of a tail light. Two when the wind blew. Any moment, the car would drive off, but it didn't. I moved to the door slipped on the shoes that I leave by the door. I stood on the porch, another moth in the porch light. Already my neighbor was there, halfway to the road. His voice was carried by the breeze. You see, we don't get many strangers here, he was saying to the stranger, who gave a muffled reply. 
I don't mean to be rude, but we don't get many strangers, my neighbor said again, and then a pause, and then a no problem. The car drove off, the two jewels of its taillights glowing briefly brighter as it slowed before turning at the stop sign. I thought about waving at my neighbor, but he turned too in the end. That is the stranger. Um, which is a very <laughs> simple explanation, description of what happened. I think it was like Tuesday night last week, so perfect fitting for the uh, prompt. And I didn't even think about it until today. So what, I, what are you going to do? But uh, now it's recorded here. And uh, <laughs> that is the prompt poem for this week. Let's see what you all have to share. And first up, we are going to go to, we'll just do it in the order once again. We have, um, so far, if you, you know, if you have, a, we'll do a two-page max today. That's what we'll say. So if you have two short poems, feel free. If you have one, you know, longer poem, just one, because I think we have a number that, that's fitting for that. And Carla Schwartz is up next. Hi. Um, I, okay, let's see. Hey, Carla. I will, uh, nice to be here. And I'm going to find my poem, which is here. Well, that's perfect. And, I got to um, find yeah. your poem, too, so let's see. Okay. <laughs> it's a prompt poem. It's mm -hmm. pretty short. And um, um, it's called Physical Therapy. Okay. Uh, I sent it to the open mic email. Yep, yep I have it right okay. here. So go ahead whenever okay. you're ready. All right. Your name means friend, while mine means free woman. I am free. But by the glimmering jewel on your left hand, you're on the brink of forever linked them while I'm already there, but without the ring. You ask me if I feel safe at home, but then ask if you can touch my back as intimate a question as the first. Yes, I feel safe at home. Yes, you can touch my back. Today, I don't impose everything I know on you. I let you be the expert. And even when you're not, I let you find your way around my back. Yeah, very interesting. Physical therapy. Great, great poem, Carla. That's uh, similar to what I was doing, I think, describing things, um, you know, very clearly. And then there's so much you can add and think about uh, going on in the background of everything, really, which is the fascinating thing about life. So thanks for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I don't have a second one ready, so I won't do that, but maybe I'll come back okay. in. Okay, yeah, after. swing back around if you feel like it. Uh, I think we have right. time, but uh, but yeah, so that's perfect. Thanks, yeah. Carla. Thank you. Okay. That was Carla Schwartz was Physical Therapy of Prompt Poem from this week. Next up, let's go to Katie Dozier. Hi, Tim. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Katie? I love the show tonight. Ruth is fascinating. I, I just know, like, couldn't I just... believe how many cool things came up she did. I'm like such a big fan now. For yeah, sure. yeah. Ruth is one of those great people that just, yeah, she has done so much and really impressive. And, you know, I, and her poems are just wonderful, too. Yeah, they are. I can say that because I bought her book yesterday. It was two ninety nine on Kindle, like Deal of the Century, yeah. and read the whole thing. Sounds, so, oh, that's yeah. great. So, uh, so what do you have to yeah. share with us this week? Well, I went in a slightly less literal direction than you and Carla, I'd mm -hmm. say. Um, I was inspired by a troll on Twitter. So. <laughs> <laughs> was, it, was it the, uh, the, I can't remember his name. I think, I think I know the guy you're talking about because it was the yeah. Carl or something from some other yeah, press who was very mad don't about say AI. His name. Okay. <laughs> don't say his name. Yeah, the problem was he insulted my friends. You can't insult my friends. Or else I'm going to write a poem about you. That's the, that's the big revenge. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, it was, uh, we should say it was about um, you know, using use of AI. So it was somebody objecting to the AI on our cover, even though it's a, you know, charity, you know, project that, uh, that Mark Fitzpatrick is doing the cover of the, the current issue we're talking about. And, um, yeah. you know, and uses AI very responsibly too. But anyway, but let's hear your, yeah. uh, your, your poem. Yeah, well, this will show him, it you know. definitely will. He's, he's nervous right now. He's... <laughs> okay, go ahead. All right. It's an American sonnet. Surprise, surprise. Okay. White Knight. You shout that every cloud is white, point to three cotton balls floating over your head, prod them with the dull daggers of your fingers. The trouble is, you pierce them. And when it starts to rain, gray pixels populate your castle, a grid of little squares you pre-filled with concrete thoughts. This is how nuance is lost. All those markers with the caps left off. The soldiers roll around underneath your neighing steed with their dried out neon mohawks. Remember when you sharpied a cloud red? Now, instead, up goes your white umbrella. How easy it is to build a colorless cube where it never rains. But all the same, you must miss the tight-eyed sky and look. Petrichor is waving high. So, I did try to bring him over to our side. Just consider a different opinion. Maybe all AI is not not bad. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe, just say. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's an important thing to talk about and an interesting topic with a lot of nuance to it, too. But then just, just jump out with some anger on Twitter. You know, and yeah. I'd be happy to talk about it more. But, uh, but that's how it goes sometimes. Well, actually, all the time on social media. So... <laughs> Anyway, a great poem uh, for the burn book. You can call your next book that if you want. You can pile up those poems. It's perfect. Oh, good. Okay. I'll, I'll have to steal that. That sounds good. Okay. That's okay. Thanks for sharing that, Katie. I mean, of course, Katie and I do the uh, the uh, poetry space on Thursdays on Twitter, speaking of the devil. And um, the topic this week is gratitude, of all things. So we're yeah. going to be talking about poems that, that give gratitude, yeah. gratitude for poetry, just that feeling in the sense that which which... Um, Ruth has so much in her book of gratitude for life, and that's one of the things that makes her poems really sing. And so we're going to be talking about that on uh, the Poetry Space uh, on Twitter. It's 3 p.m. on Thursdays, uh, so we'll definitely see you then, and looking forward to it, Katie. Yeah, thanks so much. It was really interesting, too, hearing Ruth talk about happiness and how she wrote that poem when she was not feeling happy at all, and so finding that gratitude. So it was a great study for the space on thursday today so thanks so much it is it's almost like we planned it but you know we don't it just things just happen so that's perfect <laughs> all right take have care, a good katie. night yep, bye bye that was uh katie dozier with white knights and next let's go to dick westheimer <clears throat> hey tim hey dick how you doing i'm doing great i was so, so happy with uh to hear ruth's Inter interviewed uh, there was so much joy in the comments it was sort of like it was very contagious mm. uh, yeah i mean that's that. what really comes through so strongly in the book and like i was saying even though it's such a it's a topic that you would think of as something that's really sad the joy in the memories just comes out so strongly and, and just makes the poem you know it's a beautiful thing i felt really good after reading the book which is not something sadly that happens very often when reading a book of poems you know yeah and 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 she's so crafty, so economical with her words. Mm -hmm. uh, it was great. Yeah, yeah, That's she definitely is. Good stuff. So, uh, what, um, what would you like to share? Uh, so, I will do if if there's still the two the two page rule. I'll start with the rule of Robbins, which I sent you as a poet's respond poem. Okay. Well, let me pull it up and just let us know uh, what it's about as you to start. Um. <laughs> So it's just a quirky article I saw on Reuters about a spy convention, about spies who met in Singapore 
uh, from various countries to talk about what? I'm not exactly sure. It wasn't. <laughs> well, they clear. can't talk about it. I guess is the thing. <laughs> right, except they do, and it was it was uh, it was a very strange article, and I was reading the article as robins were pecking their way through our mulberry tree. Oh, so um, I thought, huh, I wonder if this is what the spy convention looks like. <laughs> That's great. Well, let's hear it. So the unrelenting rules of robins. Robins have gathered in the mulberry tree like a rabble of spies at a spy convention. They gabble and fret about hawks and doves, about how one gives them work and the other deceives with their soothing coos, those seedy beasts with their swelling chests. The red breasts plan while they dine on berry fare, greedily eat the ones ripe past ripe, nearly fermented, that lower their inhibitions. They spill their tradecraft, how they will get up early to snatch worms from their burrows, know how, uh, how to know when storms are coming, how to find shelter when skies glower and thunder rolls the power-filled winds, how, when bird wars start, none is friend to the other, no eye goes unpecked. This grim talk makes them all fall silent, but just as quick, they get back to their birdie bacchanalia, drunk on their own chirruping, and leave their purple shit stains on cars and sidewalks, a further suggestion to the rest of us that there are forces up there, beyond our control, that ruin everything. Yeah, that's fascinating to read. Thanks for sharing that, Dick. There's a, uh, it's funny, because there was a, um, you know, right out that window, uh, there's a robin who is just one robin who sits on this rock. And then if any bird tries to come near the front yard, he just attacks. And so he's like scaring <laughs> off the the squirrels. Like, it's, I don't know. He's like guarding the territory. I was watching him like all day uh, a couple of days ago. being like, what is he doing? Like, why? What is he defending? He's defending something. And so it's really fascinating to watch. But that was a really interesting poem, uh, <laughs> given that backdrop for me. Thanks for sharing that. Um. And the other one, I just—I decided, I, actually, I sent you three poems this week, mm -hmm. but I'm going to read the one about the problem with pets, uh -huh. because Ruth mentioned the, pre the pet uh, prompt from her group last week. Oh, and that's perfect, this poem, yeah. Mm -hmm. This poem came from the same group, so here oh, we go. Oh, did it? Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and what was the news story? Because this is a Poets Respond poem, I think. This right? was a Poets Respond poem, and the news story was... Um, uh, about robotic pets in Australia got uh, taken to nursing homes oh, that uh, um, to keep uh, folks who are past their verbal capacity uh, company. And it's really a beautiful article. It, it, it's sort of like you first look at it and go, like, robotic pets, but mm -hmm. uh, the, they're finding really terrific outcomes without having, you know, to, and it reminded me of my mother who, which was my first thought when I read the article. Um, and of course that never works out in a poem when you have a thought about something, mm -hmm. it just, it just blows up, which is my mother, when she was descending into dementia, she wanted a lap dog and mm -hmm. we just decided, and I'm so sad about this now that, that um, she couldn't know, couldn't properly care for it and that she was going to die soon. And we didn't, none of us wanted a pet. Mm -hmm. So we decided not to, and it was a mistake. We yeah. should have gotten my mother a friggin' dog. Mm. 
Um, well, I mean, it's it's a true. I mean, you know, a dog's a lot of work. That's for sure. Yeah. But, you know, I um I, I worked um when I was a counselor um for mentally ill adults. I had another sort of I covered some shifts at a in a, um a memory care center too. And one of the things they were trying as a pet as a, a pet project, no pun intended, <laughs> as an experiment, I think in conjunction with the University of Rochester, was having um, they were giving hamsters to um, all the residents. And so, you know, it was something that the nurses could actually take care of, but they could like feel like they were taking care of them. And um, and I heard later that the results were just outstanding for that. And I was wondering why, you know, that's not more well known and, and why, you know, all of those kind of centers don't have, um, you know, just a, a hamster or a, a mouse or something that, that people can take care of. Mm. Yeah. Well, and and while I read the article at first with with um, uh, great skepticism, it, it was really touching, you know, the mm-hmm. response that folks had just to holding something that responded to their touch. And, you know, they're, they're, my mom died 14 years ago, so there was no, like, AI to power these things. But these things are powered with AI, and, mm-hmm. and they they give the sort of responses that somebody with dementia can be rewarded by. And I, I think it's, you know, it's wonderful given the fact that we've institutionalized all of our so many of our our elders. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Well, let's hear the poem, The Problem with Pets. Okay. I did not go in that direction. (laughs) The Problem with Pets. I am done with pets. I've loved cooing. Who's a good dog? To our collie, Bella. Simmy curled up at my feet as I write is a fine cat. She purrs in iams that rhyme with duh. And Martha the elk hound was the best grubber ever took out 10 groundhogs in one year. But a good gun could take care of such vermin. And Spotify, and this is true, has a great purring playlist. And I bet one of those robot dogs could snuggle right up when I ask it how good it was. And it would be good, unless the programmers had a chew on the fucking furniture setting or the AI got glitchy and I racked up a couple of grand in AI vet bills. And if it really was a good dog, it would end up rolling around in stink because that's what good dogs do. And what if it got loose, made its way to the neighbors to hump his AI poodle, and next you know robot pet procreation would be a thing and a new era of automation pet overlord, automaton pet overlords would do what all good dogs and cats do and make me question my choices. Why can't I be as uncomplicated as they are? Why did I adopt another pet? Why do I strive and question and cry when nothing is wrong? I wonder, do AI pets miss their kids? <laughs> That's great. So much playfulness in that. And I can totally relate, Dick. So thanks for sharing that phone, The Problem with Pets. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Bye-bye. Oh, bye. Take care. So Dick Westheimer with two poems. Next up is Mike Bales. I like the smoke poem at the beginning, especially. I think we're getting at some here, even like in the Quad Cities. My eyes are a little bit more sore. I cough a little bit. I was hearing the symptoms like one night and one night I was at karaoke and I was going, I've got a little sore throat. I haven't had one for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, even when you can't. Hate- yeah, yeah. And the people around here, like the guys I play like tennis with and stuff, they're like, oh, who cares? Let's go play. I'm like, I'm not playing tennis in that, that smoky air. I, it's, it's I was going to write a. I was going to write a poem about it, but I was busy writing about my poems about the big tragedy in Davenport. Um, I wrote 
like five poems about the building collapsing thing. Yeah. Um, it was a building I was actually kind of considering if I was going to move to an apartment. It's building as people, some people kind of recommended to me. So I was pretty upset. It could have been me in the building, but I, 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 uh, happened, I hadn't really heard about there. this. So is this home for no one? The poem? Uh, that's the one I want to read. I, all three poetry spawn ones are about this, but I'll do home for no one. It's kind of a little bit short and sweet and kind of combines maybe a touch of storytelling with the poem. Okay. Yeah. And, so and so, this is, but so tell us too, a little bit about, cause it's not something that I, you know, that I uh, know the details of. So, um, so um, what happened in this? There's a story. It's a lot of, it's a lot on the national news. There are warnings for a few months. Actually, the building been deteriorating for a long time. The landlord didn't fix their cracks and bowls. Mm. Walls bowed out. The tenants go out without heat for months. He's a, guy owns a lot of properties around the quad cities mm -hmm. and some of his other re properties have re been reported as pretty bad but they didn't collapse um three residents were killed um i didn't find an article about it but supposedly there are three homeless in the basement that were killed um they're fundraisers someone who taught some art classes that i've gone to she was she lost everything she and her partner there's a fundraiser. I didn't make that. They're fundraiser T-shirts said I want to buy, but I haven't contacted the thing. It's been the biggest thing around. The mayor's in trouble. Um, he's, there are emergency warnings, but everyone ignored him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so much like the, the Miami collapse that happened a couple years ago, too, right? Right, and that person who who lost everything, she hired the lawyer who handled the Miami collapse. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. a big thing that it's a really big thing that happened around here. So this is a poem called Home for No One. Dust cloud settles, a wrong box checked. Lies can stand no more. A brick wall collapses. The city overlooks. Band-aids cover gaps. The landlord hides. Pipes and another property burst. A voicemail says, leave a message. Down streets downtown are closed. Pigeons from a rubble erupt. Then the site falls silent. A recovery worker looks to the sky. The city sold for profit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, powerful poem there. Uh, home for no one, Mike. Do you want to read another one? Uh, um, have a two I can poem. do what, what Carla's doing and come back, you know, yeah, if you've got sure. time. Yeah, sure. Let's um, do that. Perfect. Yeah, I'll, I'll be back in just a little bit. Okay. Well, thanks, Mike. Great to see you. Yeah. So Mike Bales with Home for No One. And uh, next we will go to, um, we have, where are we? Carolyn Codd is here. Hello. Hello. Hi, Carolyn. How are you doing tonight? Okay. Um, actually, I was going to mention you were talking about pets and pet therapy. Mm-hmm. And um, also taking care of plants for older people and people that are somewhat disabled. Mm -hmm. I worked in horticultural therapy for a little while, and it's really oh, that's plants don't respond quite as much as actual live animals, mm -hmm. but they do respond, and people really do. People get a good benefit out of that. Oh, that's so, yeah, that's wonderful too. Yeah, for sure, that's great. Um, so, what do you want to share tonight? Anyways, my poem is a very little mini poem. Mm -hmm. 
um, it's it has to do with the moon, which I've always been fascinated by the moon. And um, when I can't find it, when I can't see it for a while, I, I feel kind of bad. So this is in contrast to happiness. This is a little on the sad side. Okay. Anyways, it's called longing. Okay, let's hear it. Why is the moon now visible only every few nights? Why have you been gone for so long? Oh, very touching. Yeah, great haiku-like poem, uh, longing. Carolyn, thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. There's that Carolyn Kai with longing. Um, next, we go to Brian O'Sullivan. Hi, Tim. Hey, Brian. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing really good. I got here late. Um but caught some of the joy at the end of the interview. So I'm really looking forward to watching it later. Great. Yeah. 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 She was wonderful. Uh, so what do you got for us tonight? Okay. So I have a prompt poem I sent you. It's called, if you hear screaming, um, and I'll just read it. Okay. It's based on a, so inspired by an interaction I had a couple days ago. Okay. Yeah. Let's hear it. If you hear screaming, hi, I'm Betty Lou. If you don't remember, I'm terrible. If you don't, I'm sorry. Hi, I'm Betty Lou. If you don't remember, I'm terrible with names. This is my son, Aaron, says my new neighbor, newish neighbor, smiling as she gets out of her royal blue bug with its daisy hubcap covers in our condo parking lot. Surprisingly, I had remembered her name. Hi, Betty Lou. I'm Brian. I'm terrible with names, too. Hey, Aaron, good to meet you, I say, trying to hit the right level of affability and wishing I was the kind of person who didn't have to try. Aaron, a young man with close-cropped sandy hair and an uncertain expression, aiming his gaze a few inches left of my left shoulder, says, hello, a bit loudly, a bit formally. Aaron's autistic, Betty Lou says affectionately, and she adds almost apologetically, so if you hear screaming, that's why. Cool. If you hear screaming, it's probably just me, I say, being sure to laugh. Why did I say that? Did it sound like I'm making fun of him? Or like I scream at Jen? I pause and check that I'm still smiling. You know, sometimes grading papers makes me want to scream, I explain. She laughs and says, I know the feeling, and we chit chat about teaching for a couple minutes. While Aaron looks off beyond the mailbox, beyond the construction across the street, beyond the Potomac, beyond the world's edge. I think about trying to include him in the conversation, but honestly, I don't really try. That night, as I listen to Aaron not screaming, I appreciate all the effort or all the fortune it takes not to scream. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Brian. It's one of the things uh, I always love about poetry is that we get to see people in real life that we wouldn't have before. And sort of there's a way that everybody, you know, everybody's life is worth writing about. And so it's a cool, this prop is kind of fun to just see different people in that way. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yep. Yep, take care. That's Brian O'Sullivan, once again, with If You Hear Screaming. Next up, we have Angela Gartner. Hi, Tim. How hey, are you? Good. How are you? Good. So I I actually sent you two poems because I was like, oh, well, I'll just send the other one. And I promise next week I'll try to do a prompt poem. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I've been so busy. I, um, but these are like two poet respond poems from the last couple weeks. So Okay, perfect. Yeah. So So let's tell us what they're about then first. The first one, the slow, forgetful pace. Well, the first one, um, there was a story like a couple weeks ago about an Australian woman. Mm -hmm. Um, She was elderly and she was 95 and she was, um, they called the police because she was just, you know, she had dementia, speaking of dementia. um, And so she had a steak knife and she was slowly going to the policeman who claimed he felt threatened and they tased her. Mm -hmm. 
And she actually ended up passing away a couple weeks after. And, um, you know, at the end of my grandfather's life, he had dementia. And I just made me kind of angry that, you know, they would go ahead and, you know, do this to this 95 year old woman who, um, you know, is frail as it is, you know, it's just, you just think that there's just a better way, mm-hmm. you know, to handle the situation. So I was just kind of thinking about, you know, having dementia and, you know, what kind of, what it's kind of like, I think with this poem. So yeah, yeah let's hear it. The slow, forgetful pace Have you ever held your shoestrings and forgot the loop that goes inside? Your shaking hands undo the long tie and you wonder where you are going? Looking past a woman, a boy behind the couch is playing hide and seek again. Pointing at him, you tell her he's there. She smiles and nods. You hear the voices. The radio isn't playing and TV's been off. You can't make out what they're whispering. Why are they laughing? You remember when the little girl threw her baby doll in your lap. She said, give it a kiss. You pressed your lips together on the plastic and then tied your shoes. Oh, yeah. Very touching poem. The slow, forgetful pace, you know, given the context. Great poem, uh, Angela. Thanks. And then, uh, and then and what's the next one about? Well, maybe I should read it and then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's hear maybe it. Maybe some people will get it first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's called, Are We Done With a Five-Letter Name Yet? It's the five-letter name, the one that keeps popping up in the chat bubbles. The slimy rain is falling down into the black pipes, into the dirty toilet drains. The house is peeling paint, feather brush and sunny colors. When clean, take scented soap, place on terry cloth towel, and begin wiping off grime that's still in our eyes. <laughs> that's great. I think everybody knows what that's about, too. Good point in not uh, having to say, because let's not bother. But uh, but yeah, there was a time I was thinking, no more poems about that. But then, the, you know, <laughs> that was a long time ago. So <laughs> thanks for... Well, I was kind of thinking the Harry Potter terms, like who shall not be named, you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what was going through my mind when I wrote that. This so. the most named person in history, it seems like at this point. Um, yeah. Thanks for sharing yeah. that, Angela. <laughs> Not from. All right. Take well, care. thank you. Yep. Bye. Take care. Yeah, it was Angela bye. Gardner with uh, two poems from Poets Respond. Next up, let's go to Nivedita. Hello. Hey, Nivy. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing excellent. Uh, and so what do you have that you'd like to share? Uh, I have a prompt one. Mm-hmm. Or a version of a prompt one. <laughs> Okay, so a stranger poem. Anything you want to say about it, or you want to just jump right in? Um, I think it's pretty obvious when I read it what it's about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the title sort of gives it away. Okay, perfect. Let's go ahead. A stranger. I met a stranger the other day. She was neither tall nor short, but had a face that with me would forever stay. She told me that she had once been known for her sharp retorts, but had since been silenced by those around her, and so she started wandering around looking for support. She reminded me of someone I once knew, who, though, I could not pinpoint. It could have even been you, but regardless, it had been reached, her breaking point. So I thought to help her, considering that in matters like this, I'm a connoisseur who knows exactly what to do. But sadly, I just can't quite seem to see it through. I started to speak, but stopped. She started again and stopped once more, 
For what do I tell a stranger who is so much more than a stranger? For she is but me, chopped down to the bone by those she lived with. You might think that this is a myth, but let me tell you, this stranger I see every day in the mirror is a new me. A new me that looks like me, but is not the new me I wish to be. Uh, another very touching poem. Thanks for that, a stranger, Nibby. And uh, always great to hear from you. Great, great poem and uh, great to see you. Thank you, Tim. It was lovely talking to you, too. Yep. Have a nice evening. Yep. Have Bye-bye. a good day. Bye. Thank so, you. Nibby Karthik with A Stranger. Uh, Steve Harrell is next. Maybe Steve Horrell. Hey, Steve. Oh, you're on mute still. i got to unmute. There you go. I'm so high tech. Yeah, no the only problem. reason I came on this evening was I figured out how to do the video. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. Yeah, it's great to see and, you. Yeah, and, thanks and for joining again. It's been a great evening. It's really good. Oh, thank um, you. I um, I was determined to send you like West Coast British Columbia oriented poems, mm-hmm. and I totally failed at that. <laughs> I I sent sent you a very short vignette. Um, entitled Underage. Mm-hmm. As you can see, that was about six decades ago. Um, however, I wrote the poem about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway. Yeah, let's hear it. I have it ready whenever you Okay, want. sure. Uh, underage. After work, drinking with the construction crew, Sandy, Babe, and Kelly in the Old Timers Tavern. Milt, the troll behind the bar, holds the bets for the pool table, cuts down on fights. The silent guy, always reading the newspaper in the corner, takes numbers bets for the mob. The high-mileage, bleach-blonde owner's wife peacocks through. The fox struts by, always with an eye. The chicken's loose, and the fox, he got to go get him. I laughed. Next day at work, Sandy Babe said, Steve, don't mess with the fox. He'll cut you. Oh, strong memory there. Uh, underage. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because I am, um, it feels like, I, I wonder if bars like that exist anymore. <laughs> I haven't been well, there in funny. so long. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just back in February and I drove past the corner where this bar used to be and everything's torn down. Mm-hmm. Nothing's yeah. there. Yeah. I just, uh, I don't know. I mean, for me personally, the last time I've been to a bar was so long ago and I had experience. You know, I remember stuff like that, but, uh, it's so long ago that it's almost like it just doesn't exist, which is strange. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that underage. Okay, great. Steve. Thanks. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Steve Horrell with uh, underage. We go to Spartacus next. Spartacus Anagnostris. Hello. Hey, Spartacus. Great to see you. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. I'm in Athens, Greece, and it's now half past four almost in the morning. Oh my gosh! I don't know if you're staying up late or getting up early, but either way, thanks so much for doing it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was uh, worthy because the um, interview was amazing and Ruth's poems are, you know, masterpieces. Oh, they really are. Uh, I just love the how the how how she can make up so short points and you know, so so dense and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah. So, what do you have to share with us? Um, I've got a prompt poem, mm-hmm. and when I heard that. Um, uh, you gave us a prompt, a strange a prompt. Um, I thought, you know, I have so many different stories about that because I used to keep journalistic entrance, um, entries. 
and I've got so many unusual encounters to like to describe. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is called The Bus Has Karaoke on Saturday Afternoon. Oh, I love the title. Let's hear it. I'm going to meet my friend Cleo for tennis. I'm walking to the bus stop, singing a song. On the pavement, a homeless man sleeps in his tent next to his broom and snores. I step up into the bus that carries strangers and wards of a city that never sleeps. I can smell it, stinking like a human. I can see on the floor two ear pods in their silver case. I sit down on an empty seat and I turn my head to look at the next passenger. He's an old man. His large camouflage jacket is so bohemian. He's carrying a huge disco speaker. From my chair, I can see how he moves his hands in his fingerless gloves, as if he has electricity inside his body. I can hear him singing each word of the song like a prayer. Turn up the volume. It's my favorite song, a girl tells him. I am thinking the same. Outside from the window, there are many people. Some of them offer me their silence, like a postcard. A girl moves a vacuum cleaner in the middle of the road like a dog. A skater moves next to the river with his dog pulling his skateboard. A man walks his dogs and plays music from a speaker. A tiny girl takes out of the box her high heel sandals and takes a photo. Another girl talks to her white parrot. I arrive at my destination. We need louder speakers to listen to music while we play tennis, Cleo says every time we meet. The children from the playground stop their game and cuts the tennis ball that goes over the fence. They bring it to Cleo while we pretend to play tennis. Oh, that was great. I love the descriptions there. Wonderful memory. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Spartacus. Thank you. Good yeah. night. Yeah, good night, and hope you get good night's sleep now that you can. Thanks. That is a Spartacus Agnostris with uh, The Bus Has Karaoke on Sunday Afternoon. Great poem. Let's go next to Clayton Clark. Hey, Clayton. Hey. Yeah. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great night. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, and I'd love to see uh, all the SoCal poets coming out for uh, Ruth Bavetta. That's cool. Oh, fantastic. Um, so I didn't follow the prompt exactly. Mm-hmm. The stranger was a hawk in uh, my yard. I think that counts. So. You don't know this. You don't know his name. <laughs> <laughs> it showed up over the weekend, and there's two of them now, mm-hmm. and they're out there screaming right now. So oh, wow. I'm, them but that would be fun are they red tail hawks what kind of hawks are they do you know uh red shouldered hmm interesting yeah so they're beautiful to watch um 
All right. So I wrote some Finquane, mm-hmm. um, and they're, if anyone doesn't know, they're five unrhymed lines, and they start with two syllables, then four, six, eight, and then back to two. Okay, great. Yeah. And thanks for the marauder, because it's not something I could have pulled off the top of my head. <laughs> no, the... I know. There's so many forms. Yeah. I thought, you know, I'll pop it in there. And... I know there's five lines, but that's all I could remember. Okay. So let's hear <laughs> okay. it. All right. Stranger, red-shouldered hawk, claws and aerates the grass, takes a lizard for its first ride, last flight. About you, what is it that makes us different? You pray, I pray, we eat, you fly, I can't. What must this backyard hawk think of me with my foam, an odd appendage? aimed at him. Not much. I stand mesmerized by the hawk's leap-in-place dance, going on near my empty nest, full tilt. Oh, that's wonderful. Great, great sequence of sinquane. Thanks for sharing those. Sure, they're kind of addictive. That was fun. Yeah, definitely. And there's a, so for, are they usually written in sequence like that, or are they usually standalone? Is it more haiku-ish? I don't even know. It might be standalone. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea, but I wrote a million of them. So. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, they work really well. I love the arc between all four of them. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing them. Sure. Thank you. Yep. Clayton, always a pleasure. Bye, all. Bye. <laughs> Clayton Clark with the uh, five Cinquain. And it uh, looks like we have Emily DeFerrari. Hi. Hi. Hey, Emily. Yeah, great to see you. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. I haven't been able to show up for the last bunch of Mondays, so I'm really happy to be here tonight. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. Do you can you tip your camera down a little bit? We kind of only see the, your eyes. <laughs> uh, I hid my self-view because it makes it easier for me. Uh-oh. Now, the lamp belt. Well, <laughs> all right. The lamp. Well, it's no problem. Oh, there you go. That's Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's great to see. Okay. Um, so, so what do you have? Did you uh, did you do a prompt poem or something different? I did a prompt poem from a couple of weeks ago. Actually, it was something like um, do talk about a relationship in a metaphor and carry the metaphor all the way through. Maybe, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, an extended metaphor to, to talk about a relationship. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. So here we go. But can I ask you a technical question oh, first? Yeah. yeah. Sure. So. I hate to come over to Zoom because then I can't see and make comments. Mm-hmm. So what people usually do is just they kind of like wait on, they have the Zoom open, but they have it like muted and don't use it. And then just watch on YouTube, I think, or, or somehow shift back and forth. Yeah. And and I think to too, that's why, uh, you know, a lot of the regulars race over here to get first so they can leave and go back to YouTube. <laughs> I think that's part of it too. So, um, All right. Yeah, I'll but, try uh, to toggle next time. <laughs> yeah, it used to be. I used to use a uh, Skype, by the way. I don't know if anybody here remembers that. So I had a list of people yes. to call, and then I would call. And we have to wait for the connection, but this is so much quicker, <laughs> and everybody uses Zoom after the pandemic. So, um, yeah, so it works this it way. Like dial up. Yeah, it kind of was. It was. There's a little, little like ding 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 song. That, yeah, right. <laughs> so that, that's gone forever, at least with the, with the, with COVID. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we have made some improvements. Yeah. Okay, let's go with uh, brown linen trousers. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Um, I watch my pink palms and sun-ambered knuckles pick up the wet fabric of your brown linen trousers and rub my skin raw, 
scrubbing leg against leg, drenched in the pale of green, simple green, that suds into demons or angels, both hidden in folds, exposed, then melted with rinsing and wringing as I search for the damage of the strawberry chapstick that went through the wash with your brown linen trousers that if I only believe will be saved. Oh, that's great. And I, I love the extended metaphor prompt too. And the stranger, because there's so much, you know, reading into uh into things where you don't say what it's about, but we know it's about something. And then there's so, yeah. so much like mental play going on when you read a poem like that. That's wonderful. Brown linen trousers. Thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for tonight. It was great. Yep. Thanks so much. Glad you could join us again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that was um, Emily D. Ferrari with uh, Brown linen trousers. And we have two more people here. Susan Talley is here. Hey, Susan. Hi. Hey. Can you hear me? I can. Great to see you. How are you doing tonight? Oh, that's so great. Um, I'm fine, but I really had sort of a profound experience from the prompt because going way back, like, what do you know about a person when you run into them? You know, you, you see how they're dressed. You can tell if you like them, mm-hmm. you know. And then another thing is like in New York City, you get kind of vibes. And if you feel like talking to someone, it's either positive or neutral or negative. And it's just fascinating. And then you end up with superficial characteristics, you know, and mm-hmm. even if you talk to them, you don't really know them. Yeah. And you make assumptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I, I think people are, uh, I don't, I love talking to strangers and, and you know, mm-hmm. and, and digging in and seeing what you, how deep you can get within a two minute conversation or something. It's, it's always fun to me. So I, I kind of wish more people would talk to me as I'm waiting for the bus or whatever. But anyway, I will talk to you. Well, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll be uh, next to a bus stop sometime. And we can, we can't. <laughs> the other thing is I have to say that I was walking with my sister when Paul McCartney went by and I said to her, he made eye contact with me and she didn't notice, you know, that he did that. Mm-hmm. And I said something else. I don't remember what it was. Oh, and he was whistling. And the reason he's whistling is because he doesn't want to talk to us. And that's, keeping him safe mm-hmm. yeah that's a good point it's probably true well, that's great it was so, amazing yeah it was like oh my god how long ago was that when was it maybe two years ago uh-huh. it could be more yeah. i guess it's before covid so mm-hmm. yeah interesting well let's hear the poem what do you have for us okay this is a long time ago it's just an image you know it's the wind oh i sent the other one yeah you sent how i met a woman street, street corners it's um actually called crosstown street Let's see, song from now. I'm going to be like Ruth right now and go, <laughs> I can't find it. <laughs> That's good. Wait, yeah, you can do you do the other one if you want. We'll just listen. Do you mind if I read Wind because I yeah, can't find it and ahead. I really want it. Yeah, we'll just fun. listen. Mm-hmm. Thank you, everyone. Hi, everyone. It is three long blocks west and another 10 to the gig at the Carlisle. He's got a bad mood over him. An old older woman jumps out in front. The wind nips at her nylons and races through her hairdo. As she rounds the corner where February and March collide, he's watching. The wind licks her ears and steals her shopping list upward. He could be that blustery boy missing her bouffon. Around her ear, a silver wave settles, some crescent or shell. She can wait for the echo. He has no time to retrieve lost lists. He must begin his improvisation, imitations of intentions. He took up the horn at age 10 as the words reform on her lips, root beer, whipped cream, vacuum-packed walnuts. He's getting the beat. 
the cold air of his trousers is like walking backwards. Root beer with cream back, you pack walnuts. He can take it from there all the way to the Carlisle. Uh, that's great. That was The Wind uh, by Susan Talley. Excellent descriptions. I love that. Thanks for sharing it, Susan. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, take care. Good to see you. Yeah, Susan Talley with uh, The Wind. Let's go next to uh, Lucy Chow. Hello, Tim. Hey, Lucy. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And um, I love the prompt because it's sort of um, um, in a very loving and sweet and uh, inviting way uh, nudged me out of my comfort zone because I'm so uncomfortable writing about people. But um, I sort of found these oblique entryways into the prompt. Oh, that's great. And I think you have two poems here for us, right? Yeah. yeah. I said both. Um, do you have time for both? Yeah, yeah. They're on one page each, so sure, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Um, this first poem, um, I'm playing with the word strange, and I'm kind of uh, sort of a vegetal mind, so I'm exploring how... An, an encounter with a human being can be um, also in a way other than human. So it's interesting to come at that from that perspective. It's strange to encounter a person as a plant, a concourse as a garden. Today's blazing sun makes poplar leaves shimmer like sequins. A girl walks in front of me along the riverbank, her pastel blue bonnet a blossom of plumbago, pale pink blouse a bush of hydrangeas, pleated beige skirt a suntan jasmine. It's strange to encounter a flower as a bird, but on the first glance, a racket robin's verbal sleeve is a miniature fantail, proud, Erect, holding a stout iridescent beak against a burning tropical blue. A bird of paradise stands rooted in a wire basket woven like a nest. The girl pauses to have her photo taken with its brave flamboyance. The smiling pout on her wide brim shadowed honey face suddenly wrapped like the riddling pareidolia in grimacing prehistoric bowls, her silk ribbon tied in a butterfly bowl, a wonderstruck morpho. It's strange how dreams can hum from the promenading strangers' minds, yet sound so familiar. I let them land on my hand as a bee plants her pollen-breaded feet on the wide brim of a bindweed. Oh, that was great. That was a It's Strange by Lucy Chow. And, and Lucy, let me ask you, I don't know if you heard um, when we were talking to Ruth, we were talking about how big uh, Ruth Pavetta's vocabulary is. And, and you have the most amazing, like words like furbellowed and things like that. I always learn words reading your poems. It, <laughs> how is that? That you, uh, do you like, is there something you could do that I could do to help myself with that? Because I, I'd love to just know words like that and be able to pull them out. Um, it's interesting, Tim, how you ask that, because um, I'm actually constantly immersed in a non-English environment because I live in China. And um, 
So poetry becomes a medium for me to escape from my immediate lingual environment. So I, I would, I would want that to be in that lingual experience to be anything but ordinary, anything but um, what you would hear in an ordinary encounter. So um, it's, I, I think that it's this background that sort of prompts me to go for the strange, the otherworldly, and the exalted in the choice of diction in my poetry, because it sort of um, provides another possibility, like um, like Emily Dickinson's I Dwell in Possibility. Poetry is an alternate dwelling place. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Well, let's hear the second poem, too, In Harriet's Town. Um. It's about, or it originates from uh, this very beloved uh, children's novel, uh, Harriet the Spy, that I really loved as a child. And in this poem, I, I was fancying that I, I am a poet living in a little town conceived by uh, the protagonist in that novel, Harriet M. Welsh. Um, and from the perspective of a town dweller, I encounter the creator of the town, which is Harriet itself, herself. So it's sort of an, an encounter of a character in a fictional town with uh, the creator of that fictional town. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting perspective. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, let's hear it. In Harriet's Town. Go ahead. In Harriet's Town. On a sweltering afternoon, I wandered down the shining street with incandescent winds whirling ripe seeds of London plains into my eyes. I paused to ponder pelargoniums in artisan pots, ants' legs tickled by fine flannel of their apple-scented leaves, a white-bellied, slender tabby wending among parked chevies, waving her dark brown stub of the tail, then tucking her paws under her breast to nap in gas-black shadows. I have just had my lunch, sandwiched with asparagus, portobellos, and tomatoes. I have been toiling at my typewriter the whole morning since the cool blue daybreak as the only poet in her game of town. In my hand, a sky blue notebook lies open to a daffy doodle of an imaginary bird species that I hope will visit my theater if I imagine her hard enough in my game of turn all lights off so their inner lights won't get lost. I glance at a black-headed gull and write, when I flail against an illusion in the glass facade of the fancy greenhouse, people believe I mistake the simulacrum for another's menacing self. I believe in the secret lives of herbs, birds, worms, words. I am learning to be a secret paramour of everything. I am strolling the streets making memoranda of this labor, scripts of a documentary on the writing life. 
In the threadbare shed where a tetradomelian punctually opens cans of tuna for ragged catamounts every sundown, I stare at broken bits of bird cages, slivers of bamboo still carrying traces of being once carefully crafted. She crouches behind a butterfly bush, scribbling furiously in her notebook, binoculars and Swiss army knife hitched to the waist belt of her faded blue jeans. Harrison, the allurophile, ekes out small kindnesses for the feral, the free, the unself-pitying. As the sun tilts towards the horizon, I continue observing Harriet, observing Harrison, observing cats, finishing treats. Oh, that was excellent. Great journeys in both poems in Harriet's town. Uh, thanks so much, Lucy, for sharing those. Thank you, Tim. Have a good night. Yeah, thanks so much. Have a good night. Or day. So Lucy Chow once again Bye, Tim. in Harriet's town, and uh, it's strange. And now let's swing back to uh, Carla Schwartz for a second poem. We still have a little bit of time. Okay. Hey, I sent go, the... yeah. okay, sorry about that. I sent the link to you in the chat. So I think you might have yeah, got I've that. Yeah, I've got to hear Old Frong Pond Farms in Studio is the That's uh, right. The source. Right. What, is, what is that, first of all? So this is an organic farm mm -hmm. in Harvard, Massachusetts. So sub suburbs of Boston, way out uh, in the second, second tier suburbs. Mm -hmm. And um, pretty much farmland. And it's, oh, the person, Linda Hoffman, wrote a memoir called The Artist and the Orchard for her, it, which is the whole story of her having started this organic farm, oh, knowing, knowing nothing about organic farming. And um, it's just, it's a beautiful story. And it includes, you know, stories about the Matisse family and all kinds of things. Very interesting. And um, so I've been going there because they did this sort of plein air um, poetry thing. It's there's uh, usually a sculpture exhibit there and so forth. Um, every year they did it for a number 10 years and now mm -hmm. they have stopped doing it. But so they also curate a poem of the month there. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this was one of the poems that I wrote a few years ago for that uh, plein air event. And it was for Mar and they put it up this year in March. And, um, and when I went there, it was March, the beginning of March. And there was like, three feet of snow. Oh, yeah. okay, so so um, this is called survival instinct. Okay. I want to walk the esker, but with each step in snow, my feet sink deeper. The wind so cold, it burns my fingers. I look to the slope, but find daunting the prospect of snow swallowing more of me with each step of climb and so with regret I turn and on return I trace the hollows where I stepped before follow once more my own trail that I might soon be warm well that's great yeah and it's such a cool venue to to publish a poem and I'm always curious about uh, or, or trying to think of ways that we can get poetry in front of new people and and something like that is just a wonderful example of how you can do it yeah all right thank you very much and it was a wonderful night tonight yeah, yeah thanks so much Carla okay once again that was Carla Schwartz returning with a survival instinct and let's hit Michael Bales one last time hey Mike how you doing 
Yeah, thanks for having me grab another poem. I was glad to. Yeah, um, so which one do you want to read? Uh... I didn't send it to you because it's like three years old uh -huh. from Lyrical Iowa where I've been appearing in Lyrical Iowa for more than 20 times. Um, the 2020 issues and the 2021 are kind of fun because this good friend who's actually been a partner in some readings I've done, he and I are both on the same page. Um, I'm going to the 2020 Lyrical Iowa, which has some wind towers on it. Uh -huh. And the little dots are like names. They've got the names of all his published poets on there. Oh, wow. And I'm somewhere on the back page. Um, neat way to do art. Um, this is just kind of a poem about a guy who's into a lot of things, me, at the time I happen to be delivering pain as an odd job. It's uh -huh. called it At Year's End. I want to paint my room with someone's used reds and blues. I want to write a poem where metaphors lie between the lines. I want to write a story where characters travel page to page. I want to sing a song rich with riffs and undertones. I want to create another language to make lovers cry. I want to plant a seed where fertile imaginations lie. I want to brush the sky with a touch of the sun's gold. I want to sculpt a sculpture to remember the shape of a past love. I want to create a landscape at passing dreams. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Mike, and popping back that's, on with the second poem. That's my relief after the heavy first poem. Yeah, well, that's perfect. What was the, what was the title of it again? At Year's End. At Year's End. I was just kind of wrapping up things in my mind. It mm -hmm. could almost be kind of like a bucket list that I was thinking of it at the end, year, end of the year, except I've done a variety of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's great. Thanks so much for sharing that, Mike. Okay, thanks. Yep, take care. So Mike was the last person we have on Zoom, but let's do a couple poems before we go that people emailed in. Um, let's go to uh, J.B. Penname, one of the most mysterious and interesting poets that sends us poems sometimes. I have no idea who this is. Um, somebody sent it, call, um, <laughs> uh, calling themselves just J.B., and I thought, hey, let me know who you are, and they decided to call themselves J.B. Penname instead, but these poems are great. And so um, here is... Uh, uh, J.B. Penname, she, she says, or he says, I'm working on a poem which happens to fit the prompt for this week, so I figured I'd share it. Here it is. And this is, um, having just read Containment, i put this up on screen. There you go. But me too. Having just read Containment, where Francesca Bell questions herself to tears, is the title, and it reads in. Having just read Containment, where Francesca Bell questions herself to tears in the Starbucks, questions the well-meaning white woman. I watch the man and his young son exit the gated dumpsters and think how many times I've seen that one woman pull her child around this same small plaza with a cardboard sign. But this boy, maybe six, flails a toy stereo in his hand, its plastic shell sailing arcs above his head as I stifle my pace, pretend to care which films are playing, trace the lines of a man's jacket until we meet and share a nod of unknowing meaning. He can feel my eyes, so I play lost in front of a directory, its glossy map a monolith reflecting in my own lack of direction. I am bad at this, whatever this is. I try to admire a palm tree, but I know a selfless man would not pause, would make himself an ass for the chance to do some good, where a self-aware man would tie a knot of silence from this, his kind of intentions, or sorry, 
a knot of silence from his kind intentions, scold himself for even the assumption, and keep moving. But I am neither, so I walk a bit ahead and splay a twenty on the stone path, look away when the man points after, ignore the dimpled echoes of light footsteps rounding brick until the boy and I are face to face, his eyes so much brighter than my own, my stupid gesture in his outreached hand. Yeah, excellent poem as always from J.B. Penname, having just read Containment, where Francesca Bell questions herself to tears is the title of that. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. Always a pleasure. Always a fascinating mystery. Uh, I appreciate it. And I think that's going to wrap up the uh, poems we have for the open lines. Yep, it does. So let's do the Saiku. And the Saiku for this week is based on this story. It was was a more popular science article. Um, So you might have seen this. Um, But this is the actual uh, from Northwestern University. Uh, Mysterious dashes revealed in Milky Way's center. Hundreds of horizontal filaments point toward our central supermassive black hole. So this team, I don't even understand. This is the most confusing article I've ever read. I don't really know what they mean. They say they're one-dimensional filaments, and they seem to obscure um, infrared light. What did they say? Let me try to get the quote, because I didn't really understand it. But it was fascinating, though, anyway. Um, It was a surprise to suddenly find a new population of structures that seemed to be pointing in the direction of the black hole, Yusuf Zeta said. I was actually stunned when I saw it. We had to do a lot of work to establish, um, and we found that these filaments are not random but appear to be tied to the outflow of our black hole. By studying them, we could learn more about the black hole's spin and accretion disk orientation. Um, Well, that's not the quote. So so somewhere... Oh, here is it. This is what I was looking for. So they call it... um, um, while the vertical filaments sweep through the galaxy, towering up to 150 light years, these horizontal filaments that they just discovered look more like dots and dashes of Morse code, punctuating only one side of Sagittarius A. That's the black hole at the center of our Milky Way galaxy. And um, anyway, so fascinating to think of these one-dimensional filaments, which are sort of electrical field things where stuff is accelerated to the, near the speed of light, I guess. Um, that's kind of how they were described. I don't really understand it. Um, but spreading out like spokes from the black hole. So here is the uh, Saiku that that inspired right here. And at the center of everything. And at the center of everything. That is uh, the haiku for this week. I was thinking about uh, my Michael Dilton Welch had the cut at the end of the poem. Um, so I was trying to do one of those. I always wanted to. And at the center of everything with an M dash there. But anyway, that is the Saiku for this week. And that is the show for this week. Thanks everybody for joining me. It was a great one as they always are. But Ruth Brevetta was a wonderful guest with wonderful poems. And uh, all the poems were great on the open lines too. Uh, this week's prompt inspired by Ruth is going to be this. Write a poem titled Happiness. That was the last poem in Ruth's book. Um, and it's an interesting thing to, to just take something that abstract and just write a poem about it. So the title has to be Happiness. And we'll see where we can go, how many variations of happiness we'll come up with. Um, that's going to be the prompt for next week. Next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be uh, Barbara Hamby. So Barbara's a, just a wonderful poet that we never published for the longest time, and she finally has a poem in our summer issue. Her newest book is Holo Holo, um, and, and she's just a wonderful um, sort of a maximalist poet. And she's a great professor at um, Florida State University, too. That's Barbara Hamby next week on Rattlecast 199. And your prompts, all poems titled Happiness. It'll be Monday, June 19th at the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Good night.